Good morning, people of planet Earth. You have tuned in to the radio station known as the Stream of Random. <clears throat> You're joining me on my morning walk in central New Jersey, where the air is crisp, the coffee is fresh. And the stars are shining. Venus is about three o'clock position in the east, rising. <clears throat> I see a couple of other stars. The moon is hidden. Oh, Orion is up. So it's a relatively clear night. I already see the sun starting to come up. It's almost six o'clock or just after six. And, um, I wanted to do a clip show today, but it's actually quite cold. Put my gloves on. It's actually quite cold out. But we have been studying um, more about the philosophy of art. And the neuroscience of art and beauty, aesthetics, neuroaesthetics. And it turns out that there's an institute here at the University of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> which... Uh, studies this so I can give you a little update on what we learned yesterday instead of giving you clips but it's a deep deep subject so let me just try and approach what I learned from this uh, new books radio and um he said that there are multiple competing neural interpretations of something that will inhibit each other. So you have a biased system, he said, and a competition, <clears throat> and that your brain quickly um, finds the right category for what you're looking at or what you're listening to, what you're interpreting based upon clues and hints. <clears throat> and um, for art, part of what the meaning is in an artwork is the artist's decisions and his actions. So if you can then guess all of his actions and the order of his actions, that's kind of like reverse engineering the byte codes of the software. That's understanding like what he's doing, not necessarily why he's doing it, but what.
and um, I haven't really gotten deep into the um, concept yet. I don't know what the formal definition of the concept is yet, or intent, and I'm really struggling with that. As you hear in this podcast, I don't know exactly how we're going to define a concept. But basically, they're looking at the neural um, the neural models. Like, how does the brain actually, like, they're looking at, like, MRI scans and so forth. And doing different tests. So... <clears throat> That is quite interesting. And uh, then we looked about, we watched some movies on Saul Levitt and how he created his artwork with teams of people. (laughs) Good morning. And he would um, create these programs or instructions for his artists and he would always sit in his um, studio making uh, prototypes designing his ideas and then he would write out his instructions and the artists would execute his instructions to create the art We watched his scribble art and another one with these triangles. And um, it was quite interesting. Quite interesting. So his concepts were clear and defined. They were absolutely defined. He had exact instructions. And um, I'm going to just assume that concepts can be described in some language, maybe some formalism, maybe some set theory, maybe some mathematical modeling. Using some language, maybe, you know, using the stuff we're talking about, or just English, and that there's some way to transfer the idea of a concept between two people. Through example, through pictures, through math, through examples, again, or procedures <clears throat> and that's what school is as well so somehow it works somehow it works and we're not going to belabor this too much today 
thank God. Thanks, God. Stop the hammering. Now, Marina Ibramovich is a performance artist who puts herself into the art. And she had some, and there was this great uh, fake documentary on, on it from Fred Armisen, who made fun of her. And, uh, well, anyway, let's go back to her. So she, she's the one who did the artist must be beautiful. The art must be beautiful. And she'll do these, um, art installations. Well, she'll just sit there on a chair for eight hours a day during the opening of the, um, during the opening of the, uh, the museum and just look at people. And um, she'll have a chair across from her, and the people can come. The people can come and uh, they can come and they can look. They can sit with her, and they're all lining up and waiting for hours for a chance to sit with her, and they're crying. So, <laughs> it's a very interesting um, something to do. And she wants to create these institutes where you sign up for uh, six, you have to sign a contract that you'll stay in there for six hours. And she's going to put you through all these ordeals. She said that music is the ultimate art, followed by performance art. So, if anything, um, this podcast is some form of performance art, because we live in the moment, we don't edit it, at least season one is not edited. It's a new form. I mean, maybe it's kitsch. Maybe it's poorly done. Maybe it is... has bad sound quality. Maybe I'm confused and I have no idea what I'm talking about. These are different aspects we can measure, but we're doing it together, you, my dedicated listener, and me, on this therapy session to find the truth. And I want to thank you once again for joining me on this journey, for joining me on this piece of performance art. Now, this is the This is the uh, second day of my fast, and I was dreaming about spare ribs, and fried eggs, and fried chicken, 
And um, when I think about that, I think about fried okra, fried catfish, french fries. Love that fried food. Soul food, barbecue, baked beans, and I can just go on and on. We did enjoy we did enjoy our trip to the south. But the uh, Jamaican food is very much like the soul food with the cabbage and the collards. <clears throat> and the mac and cheese. So, um, yeah, I didn't eat anything yesterday. I did have two beers. So that is kind of breaking the diet. So that was my dinner. And um, I had tea and coffee and my vitamins. Took a whole fistful of vitamins. Because we're going to have to uh, stay, keep the nutrients up during this time. Today, work is starting again. I'm slowly shifting into my work mode. So, yeah, I gotta think about work. Oh my god. Ermagerd. So, um, a lot to think about. So, I also started researching. So, we have interdisciplinarianism, right? Which this uh, philosophy of art falls under, or this uh, cognitive. This guy's work that we're discussing falls under interdisciplinary studies, which is considered the most useless topic in the world. But it's definitely a topic. And um, I'm going to at least look for some concepts in there. Concepts about interdisciplinarianism. But what I'm seeing his theory about competing classification systems that run in parallel um, that is uh, probably a good way to uh, look at things so instead of um, trying to fit all the models, you fit one of the models, and then you go with that model. And each model, it's like a different number. It's like, are you closer to this number or closer to that number? 
and um, if you have those models and the ability to match them classification systems you have clues and rules for matching them I guess you train some neural network to match some input to some some model so that's the first step I guess you could force yourself to look at things in different ways that's how like illusions happen and um, music is also about illusion with Bach creating illusions of third instruments using two instruments creating illusions of endless loops without there being an endless loop so tricks or miss classifications and I guess we could try too hard to guess not having enough knowledge which is kind of situation that we're in A lot of times we don't have enough information we're trying to guess at things especially on this podcast but uh, interdisciplinarianism the biggest waste of uh, resources they say and uh, okay well that is one thing then we have semiotics the study of symbols now that is very much married into computers and there's whole books on it so I started creating a bibliography for this project this research and um, I mean, what if we could just create a concept and say a concept is a number, a good old number, a long number, that we can somehow convert any given concept to a long number to make it unique or similar to other concepts. And we could just compare the numbers. use a vector and we can compare vectors and that's kind of what they're doing with um, deep learning creating more and more complicated models which are vectors and matrices of numbers
so we're going to have to uh, bring in some kind of, uh, well, we could just ask Vlad. He says deep learning is a scam. And we just have conditional probabilities, which we have to find. I have to get off the street. It's too busy. So we're just grasping at straws here, guys. We're presented with some idea. We're trying to grasp it. This is like a performance art. We're grasping at straws. Looking for a needle in the haystack. Counting rice. That's one of the things that she had the uh, in her performance art, Abramovich, who's Serbian. She um, gave people black and white rice and had them separate it and count it. It's a pile of rice. It's like here. Sort this out. Very much like. The Zen masters giving you a big knot to untangle that I read about. Here, untangle this knot. It'll take you years. So we got I suppose I could get a free hand and we could just play some clips but I really don't feel like doing that while walking ideally I should prepare the clips ahead of time in the studio instead of while walking And maybe we're going to have to do a clip show while sitting. I just feel so much better when walking. So this is performance art. Now, if I wanted to do real performance art, I could just... Have you listened to me walk for half an hour without saying anything? But watching a recording of that is kind of boring. If you were with me, we could walk for half an hour together. And I wouldn't say anything. Or I could just talk without saying anything. Just random words that mean nothing. Yeah, we ran out of things to say so quickly.
Okay. Let's try and pull a clip with one hand. Let's see how that works. Okay, so now we're going to just introduce uh, the talk by Mr. William Bill Seeley, and then we're going to jump into the topics he mentioned. So that we're going to jump right into a talk on Dickey. What is the puzzle of locating art? What, what is it that we're trying to explain here? Right. So um, the puzzle of locating art uh, probably uh, traces itself back farther than this, but certainly in uh, philosophy of art, traces its, itself back to Wittgenstein um, and, and, and writing uh, by George Dickey uh, about empirical aesthetics, about psychology of art in, in the middle of the 20th century. So Dickey um, defined three phases, and phase one was Plato theory of uh, imitation, that art is an imitation of reality. And then he mentions um, Tolstoy's theory of art as a communion of sharing emotions between people. And there's two other phases. We're going to get to them in the next clip. Analysis. George Dickey will set out a mini history of attempts to define art and then denials of that and then yet a further attempt which is his own proposal of the institutional theory of art that depends on the art world. And he begins by framing this in terms of three phases. And if we're thinking about the history of creation of art and talking about art and philosophical reflection on art, the first phase occupies most of human history. The second phase would be a relatively short time, largely within the 20th century. And then the third and final phase in this, this analysis or this, this schema would be the current time, uh, whether we call it an institutional theory of art or not, it would be the time of, of Dickey's theory, which does provide some sort of definition of art, but a, a different sort than the earlier definitions. So he, he calls this phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one, he talks about as the traditional attempts to define art from the imitation theory on. So he mentions two main theories of art, uh, that is theories of what constitutes the work of art as opposed to everything else, or what defines a work of art. One of these is the imitation theory, and we can call it representation theory, we can call it mimetic theory. These are all more or less the same, and it, it gets its real start with, in the West, at least, with Plato saying that artwork is, is merely, and there's a value judgment there, imitation of realities 
ways of depicting things. And this would go even for creatures that, that never really existed, like centaurs, as far as we know. You take, you know, in the imagination, the torso of a human being, torso and head and arms, and you plop it onto the body of a horse minus the head of the horse, and boom, you got a centaur, and now you can draw it or paint it or sculpt it or discuss it in literature or depict it in some other ways. And as Dickey points out, you know, there have always been some problems with this theory when we're thinking about art. Okay, so theater would be representation of human actions on the stage, like Aristotle said, also representation of their thoughts and words and spectacle. But what about music? Does music represent? It's always been kind of difficult to say precisely what music is supposed to be doing given this imitation theory. I mean, we could say, well, you know, people are imitating bird calls or something like that, but that doesn't help that much. And it's also difficult when we're thinking about poetry and language and, and those sorts of things. So there are some problems with the imitative theory of art and he, he goes on and he says, um, there's another possibility as well. The theory of art as expression of emotion. And he says, this has focused on a different property of the works of art. The relation of a work to its creator. And so we say things like, well, you know, Artistic works are things in which we express our thoughts or we express our emotions or we express our experiences. We express something. And, you know, you could think of um, Leo Tolstoy. You know, art is supposed to produce communion through sharing of emotions as a prime example of this. But there's many other uh, sub-theories that, that also viewed art and artistic activities and products as essentially engaging in expression. And, and these two kind of battled for quite a while, and both of them were ultimately shown to be inadequate as theories of art. So he says, um, the expression theory is also proved inadequate. No other subsequent definition has been satisfactory although not as fully satisfying as definitions. However, the imitation and expression theories do provide a clue. So they, they weren't a complete loss. Both singled out relational properties. Okay, so now he's going to start to introduce phase two. And um, <clears throat> just as a warning, this is called institutional art, which is his theory. And I think he's going to arrive at the theory that it's art because it's held in an art institution. That's what I read uh, yesterday in my research, so I think that's where he's going. But he's introducing Wittgenstein, who's talking about what is a game. And we are going to stop this clip, and we're going to look for a clip on Wittgenstein, because it was also mentioned. So we're just going to deep dive into these philosophers until we find the, the bottom of this rabbit hole properties of art as essential and he thinks you know th th that there was some advance in doing so so the process of trying to say what is art what constitutes art what is essential to art even if it failed it turned out to be 
quite useful. Then we move into phase two. What happens in phase two? Well, in the 20th century, um, a lot of theorists start despairing of the idea that we'll ever really be able to define art in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions, in terms of a traditional definition where, you know, the, the word for definition, horos in Greek actually means boundary. So think of a circle in which you've got everything that's that thing inside, everything that's not that thing outside. We want everything that's art inside and we don't want anything that's not art inside that circle. We want all of that out of the circle. What is the border? What allows us to define this? Some people said, well, we're never going to arrive at anything. It's, it's not simply, you know, imitation or expression or any essential thing that we could point our finger to and say, aha, this is what all art has in common. All works of art share in this essence. And there were a lot of ways of doing this. Uh, there was, you know, use of Wittgensteinian ideas, you know, the notion that Wittgenstein had that what, what actually is a game? We can't quite say what a game is with any sort of definition because any, any way that we try to define it, any characteristic that we pick out, there's always something that seems to be an exception and yet is a game. Are games supposed to be fun? What about games that are deadly serious? Are games involving uh, winning and losing? What about throwing a ball against the wall? You know, and we can go on and on. You may have read Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations in which he formulates this, which had an incredible effect on the art world. And there were other people who were raising similar arguments. He brings up Morris' vital properties of art as essential. And he thinks, you know, th th that there was some advance in doing so. So the process of trying to say, what is art? What constitutes art? What is essential to art? Even if it failed, it turned out to be quite useful. Then we move into phase two. What happens in phase two? Well, in the 20th century, um, a lot of theorists start despairing of the idea that we'll ever really be able to define art in terms of necessary and sufficient conditions, in terms of a traditional definition where, you know, the, the word for definition, horos in Greek actually means boundary. So think of a circle in which you've got everything that's that thing inside, everything that's not that thing outside. We want everything that's art inside and we don't want anything that's not art inside that circle. We want all of that out of the circle. What is the border? What allows us to define this? Some people said, well, we're never going to arrive at anything. It's, it's not simply, you know, imitation or expression or any essential thing that we could point our finger to and say, aha, this is what all art has in common. All works of art share in this essence. And there were a lot of ways of doing this. Uh, there was, you know, use of Wittgensteinian ideas, you know, the notion that Wittgenstein had that what, what actually is a game? We can't quite say what a game is with any sort of definition because any, any way that we try to define it, any characteristic that we pick out, there's always something that seems to be an exception and yet is a game. 
Are games supposed to be fun? What about games that are deadly serious? Are games involving uh, winning and losing? What about throwing a ball against the wall? You know, and we can go on and on. You may have read Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations in which he formulates this, which had an incredible effect on the art world. And there were other people who were raising similar arguments. He brings up Morris Weiss. Okay, I just listened to one clip on Wittgenstein, and he said you can't define art. And he gave examples of beauty and of games and other subjective things. And said, there's no definition of that. We can't draw a circle around it. Um, we can't classify it, so to say. But we know what it is when we see it. Now this cuts, gets into um, Umberto Eco and his um, cognitive types. And he said a cognitive type is something that we cannot describe, but we know it when we see it. And um, I'm thinking that this is a um, matching or a firing of a neuron under certain conditions. And that these conditions are widespread and can be a deep dark network. Um, and that uh, you can't really describe that network or illuminate it without a deeper understanding. Let's say a scientific attack on something. But um, it's not by nature an illuminated topic. So we're actually going to skip Wittgenstein. I just listened to a clip on him. And we're going to continue with Dickey, who seems to have already uh, summed it all up. Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to skip over a little bit. And um, there's a link to the uh, full lecture in the show notes on Dickey. And we're going to get into his treatment of Mandelbaum, who is talking about exhibited and non-exhibited features, or hidden features, that are due, that are inside of the, or hidden in the relationships, the hidden relationships, um, or the non-visible ones. And that those also play a role. So, <clears throat> now that's an interesting concept. So we have, you know, input and output layers in a neural network, and then we have the hidden layers, which are hidden um, and only interact with the input or output layers. Or with themselves, we have a hidden relationships which aren't explicit, things you should know, which you don't see immediately. The iceberg under the surface, and that these things um, play a role, deep knowledge, and introspector is all about those deep knowledge relationships for sure. But they're being explicitly stated somehow as facts. I guess they could also be gleaned. 
But if you don't have them as facts and you can't glean them, then you just don't know them. Okay. But that kind of gets into the idea of the secret of the password that you don't know that we discussed before. All right. Um, the challenge to both is based on the charge that they've been concerned only with what Mandelbaum calls exhibited characteristics. Exhibited characteristics would be things like is an imitation of something real or the product of a composition of imitation of something real or is an expression of emotion, thoughts, desires, whatever it is that we're going to say in an expressive theory. Those would be exhibited characteristics. Dickey goes on and says that Mandelbaum is right in talking about non-exhibited relational aspects of game and art. So what are, we, what are we talking about there? He says, by exhibited characteristics, Mandelbaum means easily perceived properties, like a ball being used in a certain kind of game, or a painting having a triangular composition, or the plot of a tragedy contains a reversal of fortune. What would a non-exhibited characteristic be? It would be something much more complex, much more relational, based in something else. And actually, Wittgenstein is providing some sort of clues here with his notion of language game, but also form of life that's irreducible to a set of rules. So phase two. Okay, so now I can chime in here. So he's going to introduce, so that was the second wave, which was the criticism of the first phase, which is basically the rejection so we have a theory, we have an anti-theory, and now we're going to get our synthesis. So this seems like a Hegelian dialectic, again. Um, and uh, it looks like we're getting into some kind of critical theory, I would suppose. I have to check the time on this. Um, but uh, we see some patterns that we've seen before. Now, if we have these systems that produce art and these systems that historically produce classification and evaluation or valuing uh, systems, um, and those systems are subject to systems of power, structure, power structures, and um, market forces, which is another form of power. And eventually we're going to say that they're subject to the laws of the memes and they're just curating memes that contain information about their environment, I would say. If we say that the um, gene contains information about the environment, then the meme also contains information about the environment. And it's adapted to its environment to the power structures for the resource consumption that we have discussed for its execution and this we could consider it an entertainment or pleasure or a need 
of beauty, of aesthetics. They say um, we should get 20, hour, 20 minutes of walking or exposure to nature every day. Um, and that can reduce stress levels. Well, what about looking at art or exposing yourself to art or surrounding yourself with art and beauty? Um, will that reduce your stress levels? So maybe there is some need as well. Anyway, I'm not going to talk too much. Let's introduce this clip. ...does serve some sort of purpose in that it helps to show the problems, the failings of the previous theories of art that people were relying on. Now, notice that Dickey is not saying, oh, well, bad theory, we get rid of it entirely, we reject it, it's thrown away, it's canceled to use today's parlance. No, instead, we need something that can incorporate what's right in those, but also get beyond what was wrong. So, this is where he proposes an institutional theory of art. And this is going to focus on non-exhibited relational aspects. He uses a couple different words here. Aspects, features, or characteristics of works of art. And here is where he brings in something that he doesn't originate himself, but takes from Arthur Danto, the notion of the art world. The art world, as he says, is an entire broad social institution in which works of art have their place. And he, he notes that there are systems within the art world. So drama is, or theater is a system. Painting is a system. Uh, sculpture is a system. Literature can be understood as a system. And he says that each of the systems has had its own origins and historical development. You can't reduce it down to an essence. You have to look at these things historically, and you might even say sociologically, although he doesn't use that word in this, this discussion. Now, he tells us that one central feature all the systems have in common is that each is a framework for the presenting of particular works of art. And it provides us with a way of saying, this is art, this is not art, at least in what he's going to call a classificatory sense, but also in the evaluative sense in, in which we say, this is a good work of art, or this is really a work of art, right? With sort of emphasis in the voice. So this... All right. So now um, we're actually going to get into the definition, which is quite a good definition. And um, I like it a lot. I like the way he's termed it. And um, I was just going to say that this art is... Well, maybe what we're doing is not art because it's not as part of the institution. And, uh, well, you could also say a podcast is a podcast when it's in the Apple iStore index or if it's in the uh, podcasting podcast.index. Um, 
So when is a podcast a podcast, and when is a podcast art? And I think uh, a lot of the stuff I've done has been anti-institutional, or outside the institution. So personal, or dilettante, amateur art. Uh, which I guess is a classification in some form. So yeah, we're going to have to uh, get deeper into this. But uh, let's listen to this definition, and then we're going to go over it again. This third way of looking at things allows us to get beyond these, these earlier theories, get beyond the rejection of them, and provide something like necessary and sufficient conditions. And he will do so in, in, you know, defining a work of art as a artifact, a set of the aspects of which has had conferred upon it the status of candidate for appreciation by some person or persons acting on behalf of a certain social institution, i.e. the art world. And he points out that there's several features to this, which we'll look at elsewhere. Uh, these are acting on behalf of an institution, conferring status, being a candidate, and appreciation. Along with this also goes artifactuality. There has to be some sort of doing something, some transforming something in the process, some producing a product. And Dickey thinks that this theory and definition of art can explain to us what art really is and how we can make sense of it. He does say that a little bit later, um, some may have the uncomfortable feeling that his definition is viciously circular. And he says that it is circular, but not viciously so. Um, it, it's, it's providing us a genuine understanding of what's going on when we say that something is art, when we sell something as art. Okay. So we get into this whole idea of, um, an artifact whose aspects match the definition set forth by a standard body or people acting on its behalf with the candidate and candidate status in the process of evaluation. And um, <clears throat> this kind of gets us into what we learned from Vlad, where Vlad said we have a uh, candidate status of the, we have the candidate status of the, um, of the theories. We have a function, candidate function that matches the um, force, a candidate function that is sufficient um, uh, for the uh, a candidate function that's sufficient to uh, to do the mapping um, to do the statistical mapping so to do the classification so 
I guess we're talking about somehow the art world developing candidate functions. We're developing functions to measure candidate artifacts. We have artists who are developing functions that produce artifacts, which are evaluated by the art world that is producing functions to evaluate artifacts. So we have a uh, encoder decoder type race situation or the fight between the encoders, the producers of art for survival, for resources, and the fight between the encoder and the decoder of art for the gaining of those resources, the conflict as the essential nature of the meme. Okay. And I think we're going to wrap up this podcast now. And we actually only got into 10 seconds of the other podcast. But hey, um, I think we learned something. I think I learned something. And our podcast here, this artwork, this um, expression of language uh, will continue to improve over time as we develop our ideas, we develop our functions, our faculties through exercise and study. And we're doing this together. So eventually, I think we can um, we can come up with some things, some, uh, something interesting. And something can come out of this podcast, maybe some new theories. I mean, we tried our hand at some theory, but we're going to have to integrate more of these uh, theories of art. We have to study the theory of art. And um, when we get to institutions, an institutional theory, I think we're also going to get into a personal, a personal theory like an app is sufficient when it's installed and it gets a good rating by a certain percentage of its users. Right? Which fulfills some need. All right. Well, we are going to. Um, We are going to uh, think about this some more, and I wish you all a good day, and uh, check out the show notes for links. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.